This morning's scriptures that were paired together, this word from Isaiah and this word from Luke, are so different and also so similar. Right? We get these words from Isaiah promising the glory of what's to come, promising all this goodness. And then we get these words from Luke promising the glory of what to come and all this goodness in a very different way. This morning, friends, in this passage from Luke, we find ourselves at the temple. Jesus and his disciples are at the temple. And while we, in our calendar season, are getting ready to go into Advent, this is actually Holy Week in Scripture. It's the week of Jesus' death. Jesus has derived within Jerusalem, and within a few days, he will complete his journey to the cross. This is not just any temple Jesus is sitting in. He's not just looking around at any temple. This is the temple. In the Old Testament, we hear about the people of Israel wandering and longing for a temple, longing for a home that they have been promised to dwell in. We hear in the Old Testament about King David. You might have heard of him. He's very popular and also kind of awful, to be honest. King David is Solomon's father, and he collects all these items to dedicate to a temple throughout his entire lifetime, these beautiful, ornate items. And after he dies, Solomon completes David's call. He uses all these things David collected, all these materials, these golden objects, and he erects an awe-inspiring structure. Solomon constructs the first temple. It replaced the tabernacle that had accompanied the Israelites on their journey for 40 years to the promised land. The Ark of the Covenant rests in Solomon's temple just as it had in the tabernacle. When the temple was finished, Solomon dedicates it to burnt offerings and prayers. He dedicates it and God's presence fills the temple with smoke. The glory of the Lord revealed. God with the people of Israel in their permanent dwelling place. God's people have found a home, at least for a little while. The problem is this temple kind of loses its dazzle after a while. You know when something is so shiny and new and you love it? This week, I bought some new furniture. Years ago, as I was first starting college, I had no money and I needed furniture. I needed a bed, I needed a coffee table. Those were the two most important things in my mind. I don't know why, but after bed, coffee table. <laughs> and so I went to the local hospice store, which is where people would donate furniture and you could come in and buy it. And all of the proceeds benefited hospice care in the area that I lived in. 
And sometimes the things were the items that came out of the deceased house. But you just don't worry about that. So I went and I bought a bed frame that I swear was from 1960. Um, this beautiful bed frame with a wooden headboard that I painted and worked on. And I bought this coffee table that, no joke, weighs a hundred pounds. It is solid wood. The top of it is all these different squares that are textured to look like marble. It is this beautiful piece of art. And this coffee table I have carried with me every place I have moved since I was 18 years old. And I have moved at least once every year or two since I was 18 years old. So me and this 100 pound, gigantic, ridiculously ornate coffee table go everywhere together. <laughs> I've gotten a new bed since this time. I bought some new furniture. I've upgraded to Amazon and not the hospice store, though I do still love going there. They have great chairs. This coffee table and I are pretty attached at this point. I still love it. And this past week, I decided it was time for a new coffee table. The coffee table was starting to fall apart. One of the legs is a little janky. I have to kick it back into place. It's giant. It doesn't actually quite fit in my living room. It is wider than any coffee table I've ever seen. It's a little wider than this one, so it's big. It's a little worn from all the things I've spilled over it across the years, from me using it as a makeshift desk and all sorts of other things when it was the only piece of furniture I had besides a bed. I decided it was time for a new one, something shinier. And so I did that, I bought it, I put it together myself, and I set it up in my living room and I moved my coffee table out and I looked at it and it looks so much better. But it doesn't feel as good. It looks better, it matches all my other furniture better. It size why makes more sense, but it's not my coffee table. It's not my kind of janky, aesthetically pleasing, ridiculously large, heavy coffee table. It's not an art piece. It's not something cool that I discovered. It's an Amazon piece that I ordered and I put together and I whacked with a hammer because it wouldn't quite fit the way I wanted it to. <sighs> or I just didn't do it right, honestly, who knows. That's a problem sometimes. We build things and we put them up and we love them and then they start to lose their shine and then we just don't love them quite as much. That's what happens to God's people. The temple kind of loses its sheen and its awe. It sits there for a while and they just kind of stray away from it it starts to degrade a little bit and they don't find themselves faithful to God anymore. Eventually the temple is destroyed. This beautiful thing that generations longed for, this beautiful thing David spent a lifetime collecting goods for that his son built in his honor and in God's honor, eventually it falls. It's a heap of rubble 
the Ark of the Covenant is destroyed, some of the original things, the golden lampstands and the sacrificial bowls are found. They're brought back from Persia. The temple's built again. But God's presence doesn't fill it the same way. They look around and it's shiny and it's new and it doesn't quite fit in the living room the same way. Much like my coffee table, it just doesn't have the same vibe. While the temple's brought back, it lacks captivation and splendor. It doesn't elicit the same joy. God's smoke doesn't fill it the same way. If we fast forward a few centuries, we meet Herod, Herod the Great, who you may have heard of. Herod is known both for his brutality and for his love of architecture, a very strange marriage in one person. Herod is a king. He practices Judaism. And even though he considers himself faithful, he's not necessarily considered that by most of the Jews, particularly those in leadership. The first century historian Josephus tells us that Herod constructs a temple, a new temple something else bright and shiny. And Josephus tells us that he lays a new foundation so immense that it would have weighed well over a hundred tons. The largest foundation stone was more than 44 feet long, 11 feet wide, and 16 and a half feet high. That the temple itself would have weighed somewhere between 500 and 700 tons. The temple sat at the top of Mount Moriah, white stone and gold making up every visible surface. The temple that Herod built was inside a 35-acre compound. It would have taken years to build. It required more than 40 years of labor. In fact, it was still under construction. At the time, Jesus is standing in it, looking around while everyone is in awe of the bright and shiny things still under work. The outer court of the temple could hold 400,000 people. It was huge. This project is so extensive that truly it's only completed about six years before it's destroyed. Six years, it sat in fullness. This thing of ridiculous grandeur. The temple's beauty was acknowledged throughout the entire Roman world and people admired Herod. It became common for people to say, he who has not seen Herod's building has never seen anything beautiful. Herod's building. That's what they call the house of God. (laughs) And if you haven't seen that thing Herod built, you haven't seen beauty. King Herod, this man of awful brutality, 
If you haven't seen his building, you haven't seen beauty. He built this beautiful structure, which is arguably his greatest building project, and it's more of a mountain to, to himself, a structure to himself, showing off his great grandeur, his wealth, and his splendor, his beauty as a king. It's more about, have you seen that thing Herod built? Then have you found God there? We know that as a king, Herod is an opportunist. He's greatly ambitious. He's presumptuous. He's a little paranoid, as I imagine most kings are. He ignores the pre-existing laws. He imprisoned his own wife for political gain. He had multiple, so I guess you didn't need that one. In addition to the temple, Herod built a theater and an amphitheater. He introduced Greek arts. He made the overall culture more Hellenistic. For himself, he builds this ornate palace of gold and marble, and he builds a fresh, shiny temple. Herod's reign, while marked by incredible architecture, is also marked by terror. With his impressive structures and his supposed faithfulness to God, Herod also secures his success at the expense of others. He orders a massacre of male children, which we hear about at the beginning of Jesus' birth. In fear of the idea that a new king is being born, Herod slaughters every male child he can. In fear that his own son will steal his throne, Herod has him killed. And at the end of his life, shortly after killing his own son, Herod gives a final order that soldiers were to round up all of the most distinguished men in Judea, bring them into the theater and execute all of them to ensure that the people of the city that the Jews would be mourning in the wake of his passing. An order which ultimately fails to be carried out, but I think shows the truth of his heart. This, friends, is the temple that Jesus is standing in today, and it's the temple people in the area said, have you seen that? That thing that's so beautiful. That thing that was built by this man who persecuted babies. This temple which is meant to be holy and violates holy law. This temple that's more about flaunting the grandeur of the constructor than God. This temple that no doubt had to have been built by slaves or at best underpaid workers while being funded by the unfair taxation of poor Jews. That's the thing we look at and go, oh, it's so bright and it's so shiny. As Jesus and his disciples stand in this temple and they're looking around and they just see this beautiful adornment, the gold and the white and the marble, they fail to see the spiritual bankruptcy, the facade that stands behind the beauty They see the grandeur, but they don't see the hypocrisy and the oppression that lies in between the stones. 
They see the glory and not the fact that Jesus' own death is coming. Oftentimes we read today's scripture and we see, oh, this is about the end times. This is about the apocalypse. Jesus is telling us that the end times are coming and there's going to be earthquakes and there's going to be death and there's going to be corruption and there's going to be slaughter and there's going to be war. People are going to be put to death in the name of God. Great buildings are going to fall. And we read this and we think, oh, this is about the apocalypse. And it's actually about the time they're in right now. Jesus is warning them of all these awful things that are going to mean the end. And we think Jesus means the end of the end. When in reality, this temple only has about six years left. Quite literally, it's going to fall. Quite literally, people are going to start betraying others in the name of God. People are going to be put to death. In the name of God, Jesus himself is going to be slaughtered. Jesus' followers are going to be persecuted. Great things are going to fall apart. Sometimes we read scriptures like the one we read today and think it's about the end times, which if you have heard me talk about is something that I was constantly surrounded as a child growing up by and therefore was incredibly paranoid about. And I would regularly pray as a teenager for Jesus to please not come back yet because I really wanted to go to prom. <laughs> and I really wanted to get married and it would just like really be a bummer if Jesus came back before homecoming. <laughs> Which was very important because I was nominated for homecoming queen and I ended up winning and I really didn't want, want Jesus to kill that dream for me. <laughs> We read the scripture and it's been taken to heart over and over again about the end times. And if you're in these circles of particular forms of evangelical Christianity or other types of Christianity, you might be hearing people say right now, the end is coming. The signs are happening. I think I see a post about it like once a week on Facebook at least, and it is both humorous to me and really sad. <laughs> because we've been saying the end is coming forever. And we're using scripture that is not warning about our end, but warning about what's literally about to happen to Jesus' disciples to justify it. I think the truth of this scripture is not that the end is coming, the end end, it's that there's a million ends. That every beautiful structure that's built has the potential of becoming corrupt. We see it over and over again. The Jewish people spend generations wishing for a temple that loses its shininess and eventually falls really quickly. We see that other temples are built, and it happens to all of them too. They become corrupt spaces. We see Jesus and all of his disciples standing in what is meant to be the most beautiful structure ever. And not only is it nothing, but this place of worship built on awful things, it's going to fall really soon. And frankly, it needs to. 
because this place that's meant to be holy is just gross. And Jesus is looking around going, why don't y'all see this? Temples, societies, people, that's what we do. We just get messed up and corrupt and we fall apart. The end keeps coming over and over again. We have like many apocalypse after many apocalypse. We have wars and plagues and slaughterings and earthquakes and horrible things over and over again. Yes, there's going to be one big end, but none of us knows when it's going to come. We just know the promise that Isaiah offers, that there's goodness in it. And we know that we need to be careful of bright, shiny temples. <laughs> Sometimes I look around an open table, and truly this is one of the most beautiful sanctuaries I've ever been in the United States. To be fair, I haven't traveled a lot, but <laughs> this place is gorgeous. The architecture, the windows, the people, the colors, it's beautiful. It's a temple that I look around and go, look at these adornments. I can't say that word. And then I wonder, are we doing what the disciples are doing? Is there corruption in the foundation somewhere that I haven't quite gotten, gotten a hold of? <laughs> Something so interesting, friends, is that this is actually the 80-year anniversary of the construction of this building. Isn't that wild? This building was built in 1942, and it originally opened as Trinity United Methodist Church. Open Table has had many, many endings and beginnings. And recently, as those of us who were here cleaned out one of our upstairs rooms, which was truly a mystery, um, I found the banner, we found the banner, from the year this church opened, a handmade banner from 1942. And it's beautiful, and it's still in really good condition, and we should hang it up. <laughs> and what I was reminded of is that Trinity didn't just pop up out of nowhere. Trinity was the combination of two other churches. And those churches we have pictures of, they're beautiful buildings, truly beautiful churches. And they were kind of awful too. And let me tell you why. In the Methodist tradition, when John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, created it, he was what we would call today a socialist. Truly, like... The guy was wild for the 1700s. He believed in universal health care. He believed in what he called social holiness. He believed in living in community, alleviating poverty, doing justice work. He was staunchly anti-slavery. He was hard believing in empowering women to be leaders in the church in various facets. He would ordain just about anyone, to be honest. He was this radically strange person. And as the Methodist movement was built up in America, it did pretty well. And then we got to a split, because that's what the church does really well. 
we got to a split because while John Wesley was staunchly anti-slavery, the Methodist church in the South was primarily slave-owning. And so they split. Methodists in the South wanted to maintain being Methodist and also being slave-owning. And so they became Methodist Episcopal Church South. And that was the two churches that used to exist in this area of Raleigh. They were Methodist Episcopal churches of the South. They formed in the 1870s, post-Civil War. They were people who had been pro-slavery and then who found themselves in the remnants of a world where that didn't win. And so time passed, those slave owners died and the church got to a place in the 1930s and 40s when these two churches had dwindled down and people didn't really believe that anymore and they realized they weren't living out their call. But they had these buildings, these buildings built on that principle. And so what do you do with them? They're beautiful. They are gorgeous buildings. With all of their adornment, they needed to die, friends. And so they did. And they were reborn here as Trinity, a new temple with beautiful adornments and hopefully not built on that. And Trinity lived out its years. And I don't want to say that it needed to die because I don't think Trinity was quite there. But we realized that there was a need for a freshness, that the temple needed some work done, like a facelift. <laughs> and so it closed and it became open table, a new iteration of trying to be welcoming of all people, a new iteration of trying to cleanse the temple, of trying to pay attention to what's in the foundation. Open Table in its history has been, at this point, many iterations of church, of people just trying over and over again and realizing that they're getting it wrong and the temple's not quite right and we need to purge it or just completely kill it and build it again. There's been a lot of apocalypses. Ultimately, I think Jesus' message for us, friends, is that sometimes things just need to die. That temples, they're just buildings, they're just stone. And as beautiful as they might be, they can also be harmful. As glorious as they might be, they can also be built by people like Herod. They can point to people instead of God. They can be corrupt. They can be places of oppression. They can literally be built off of oppressive beliefs. They can literally be built off the idea that slavery is right or that some people don't belong or in the church or some people shouldn't be ordained or whatever. And we need to pay attention to that. Because the bright and shiny might distract us from the not bright and shiny that lies beneath.
This morning, friends, as you look around at this space, which is beautiful, I hope it is beautiful because it is beautiful and because what's behind it is beautiful too. I don't think there's a lot lying at Open Tables Foundation anymore that we need to be cleansed of. That also means we shouldn't forget what we've had to cleanse ourselves of. The many iterations that we've gone through in order to be a place that hopefully is pointing truly to Jesus. This morning, friends, if you're like me and you're filled with the trauma of constantly being told the world's gonna end and you better get right with Jesus, the good news is things are just gonna keep dying. <laughs> the world is gonna end sometime. And this word is not for our right now. It was for Jesus' disciples. It's for us. And it's not looming over us in some sort of scary way. The weird things people tell you, the scary impending doom that the rapture is going to happen, that you're going to get zapped up or not, and then you're just going to be stuck here. All the Waffle Houses are going to close. <laughs> and once that happens, there's literally no hope for humanity. <laughs> whatever, whatever scary thing has been placed in your brain, please know it's not quite like that. The, the end is coming, and we're going to face a million endings and new beginnings on the way there. And there's always hope in that. There's always hope in the new beginning. There's always hope on the other side. And there's always hope in Isaiah. That ultimately we're going to find ourselves in this incredibly sweet, sweet place. Where there's absolutely no chance of corruption. Where we know the lion and the wolf can dwell together. That the lamb and the wolf, the sheep and the lion... They all just exist because there's no threat. There's just joy. Thanks be to God.